Oh, what a wonderful day in the Lord we've had already. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. I told Brother Jeff that today would be our final sermon in Acts, and if you'd like to mark it down as that, you can. But next Sunday, we're going to address the, the verses here that Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, which was just read for us this morning by Pastor Brent. Then we sang a paraphrase of it. And then we went to Revelation and we see that scene there in Revelation. And then we sing about it again. Um, so as we, uh, as we will read that this morning, we're not going to address those verses from Acts and Isaiah and Revelation. And next Lord's Day, we're going to bring in a psalm in addition to those. And I think the message will be titled something like, You Are What You Eat, or something like that. So, uh, I, um, I look forward to that, and you'll just have to come and see. Acts chapter 28, we'll read verses 11 through 31. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petioli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. That's been a long time coming, by the way. And thus we came to Rome. Verse 15. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from as far as the market of Apius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, I thought I had done nothing, uh, I'm sorry, though I had done nothing against our people or their customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no guilt, uh, no ground for putting me to death. I'm reading into the text this morning instead of just reading the words. Verse 19. But when, we, when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak to you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. 
And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would, I would heal them. Verse 28. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Verse 29, when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Let's pray. God, help us now this hour. Penetrate our hearts with your word by the Holy Spirit. Help us to hear and to understand. Help us to see and to perceive. We pray that you would make our dull hearts sensitive to your leading. Open our ears, open our eyes. Let us, we pray, hear the voice of Jesus Christ in the preaching. We give you all glory, laud, and honor. Amen. After three months on the island of Malta, Paul and the rest of the party, the soldiers, the, the other prisoners, and those who were traveling with them, they are ready to set sail to complete the journey, to get to that verse. Thus we arrived at Rome. The text tells us that they boarded an Alexandrian ship. You know, that means that's where the ship was from. It was from Alexandria, probably built there. This was likely just like the Alexandrian ship that they were on that was broken up in the shipwreck. We're told in verse 11 that this Alexandrian ship that they boarded had the figurehead of the twin brothers. The figurehead of the twin brothers. And we asked this question 
Why is that included? Why is that detail here? When we don't know what the figurehead of the other ship was, it, it probably had one. The, the figurehead being a carved wooden figure on the bow of the ship. And if you think about the movies that you've watched with old ships, you've probably seen a carved figurehead, perhaps a, a woman's figure or a, a soldier or uh, some, some figure on the front of this ship. These figureheads were, um, were cherished by the ship's crew who were usually very superstitious about things like this. Sometimes the crew would have carved the figurehead themselves so it would be very special to them. This figurehead of the twin brothers, that doesn't make any sense to us, right? In our day, we don't, we don't pick up on what that means but this is an indication of the twin mythical gods, the twin sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux. So the twin brothers, they would have known in that day as Luke wrote this, oh, that's the figurehead that was there. As I mentioned, it may seem odd that Luke goes to the trouble of telling us about this figurehead. It, it does stand out that they had been under a very visible, a, a very visible hand of God being guided by the Almighty. Remember back to the previous chapters and all the detail about the storm and the shipwreck, all the detail that was there. And it's there to show us the providential hand of God, it had been so evident. And through this, God had brought Paul to a special place uh, in the sight of the centurion and in the sight of those who were traveling with them. And here, after they have been under this very visible guidance of God Almighty, now they are boarding a ship that is visibly, very visibly pagan. They're boarding a pagan ship with the twin false gods at its bow. Notice what we don't find. How can you notice what we don't find? Well, let's see what's not here. <laughs> we don't find Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, the three Christians who had boarded that first Alexandrian ship. Uh, but as we talk about the Christians aboard this second ship, remember all that has happened. And remember that Paul has been preaching and teaching while on the ship, while at Malta for three months. At this point, as they board this second ship, I doubt very much that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus are the only Christians. Surely there are soldiers who have believed. There are crew from the ship who have believed. Other prisoners who have believed in Jesus Christ. So what we don't find happening among Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, or among the other new believers 
They are not protesting. They are not boycotting the ship. They certainly know that this ship has been marked with these pagan gods. They certainly know that there are pagans who are running this whole thing, but they don't feel the need to make a big deal about it. I know as I make this point that there is a limit. There is going too far. I know that there are special circumstances. So I don't want to take this point too far, but the point that I am trying to make here is that too often Christians make a big show of boycotting, of protesting, when the lost world demonstrates its lostness. We hear Christians say, well, I can't eat at that restaurant. I can't use that pagan phone service. And I can't buy milk from that pagan grocer. I wonder how many opportunities to witness for Jesus Christ do we lose when we avoid lost people. These Christians had no issue boarding a ship and sailing into the sea aboard a pagan-owned, pagan-run cruise line. Now, I already know this wasn't a cruise line, but you know what I'm saying. The point is made. They board this ship that Luke brings to our attention is marked with paganism. And they set out. Way back in Acts chapter 9, when we studied the conversion of Saul the persecutor, who would become Paul the apostle, God said this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Acts 9, and we've studied 18 more chapters in the book of Acts, and we've seen that Paul certainly was used as God's instrument to bear the name of Jesus, and he did so to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. He preached to the poor, and he preached to the wealthy. He preached to governors, and he even most recently in our study preached to King Agrippa. Paul has suffered for the cause of Christ. And all along he has desired to go to Rome. Paul had written the book of Romans, a letter. We call it an epistle, but it's a letter to the Roman Christians. He had written that letter three years prior to these events in our text. Paul wrote to the Romans and there in chapter one, we, we feel as we read, we can feel his love for the Roman people and his desire to go there. Listen to verses eight and following of Romans chapter one. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 
For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I'm constantly praying that God would open a door for me to go to Rome. He continues, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I, I may be encouraged that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. So it's not just a prayer. It's a plan. And he says, I've been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, for I am under obligation, both the Greeks and to barbarians. Remember, that's those who didn't speak Greek, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's all. He goes on a lot there about, I want to come there. I want to preach there. I want to have a share in ministry among you. I want to be with you. Paul has desired to go to Rome for years. <coughs> and God had revealed to Paul that he would go to Rome. He had told him that he would go there and that he would be before Nero. And now that Paul is in Rome, thus we arrived in Rome. Now that he's there, I wonder how he felt about it. I would guess as Paul wrote to the Roman church about his desire to go there, his desire never would include that he would arrive as a prisoner. His desire would not be that he would have a chain I bet he never imagined doing ministry in Rome from a rented quarters where he was under house arrest. So there's something that we learn here. It's the first thing that we draw from this text this morning. Even though the circumstances turned out differently than Paul would have thought, even though they were differently than he would have planned, different than he would have expected, Paul is not washed up. Even though he was shipwrecked, he's not washed up. Paul is not at a place of retirement or at a place of quitting. Now, if we remember that Paul is a prisoner, then we can look at his circumstance in Rome and we can say, well, that is quite nice. He was able to stay in a private dwelling. I, I believe this to be a large home, a large house, perhaps with a, with a large uh, courtyard. Because we see that those who gathered, gathered in large crowds. Paul had freedom to receive guests, to communicate with the outside world. But he was under 24-7 guard. Under house arrest. 
Now, when we look at the different kinds, and we, we've considered this in the past, the different kinds of imprisonment in Rome under Roman rule. And this would have been the best kind of under arrest to be. If you're going to be under arrest, this is the kind of under arrest to be. But it's still under arrest. And under arrest, Paul does not get depressed or discouraged. He doesn't quit. We don't find Paul pouting about his situation. Now, Christian brother and sister, how would you have been in that circumstance? Well, the way you answer that accurately is you look at how you are today. When things don't go your way or when things don't go as you hoped they would turn out, do you sulk? Do you look at others who seem to have things going well and you poke your bottom lip out because you have it so hard? Sometimes we don't even need to have it hard when others have it good. Sometimes we just don't have it quite as good as they have it. And we sulk. We need to observe the attitude of Paul. We need to take it as an example. And we need to have the attitude of Paul. Hear what he wrote during this time of confinement. Some have called it a time of prison. That might be a little bit of a stretch to call it prison. But it is certainly confinement. Uh, I'd like for you to turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Because if you don't turn there, you won't believe when I read it. So Philippians 4. Now, while Paul was in Rome under house arrest, he wrote some letters. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote these letters, and they're commonly called the prison epistles, though we might argue a bit with the, the confinement epistles, maybe. The detained epistles, but not necessarily the prison epistles. But he wrote these from here. He wrote, let's look at Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul is chained to a soldier as he writes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me that you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am, con I, I am to be content. I have learned whatever situation therein to be content. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He wrote the letter to the Philippians. The theme 
to Philippians, the theme to the Philippian letter is rejoicing. Joy. And Paul wrote this joy-filled letter under arrest. Every one of us surely has heard the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. And how many times is that taken out of context? And we know context, context, context. But did you realize I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? The context of that statement is I can endure arrest and hardship which comes my way through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure in good times, but I can endure in bad times through Christ who strengthens me. This is the context of this verse. Under arrest, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But some of us complain and whine, not just when we're having a hard time, but when someone else is having a better time than us. Beloved, have you learned to be content in whatever the circumstances are, whatever state you are in, <coughs> consider a heart of gratitude and a heart of discontentment cannot coexist. God, I thank you for what I have received from your hand, but now I would like to complain about it just a little. That doesn't make sense. A heart of gratitude and a heart of discontentment cannot coexist. Paul was grateful to God for all that God had done. He had seen through everything that he had, he had gone through. God's hand of providence. When we find ourselves discontent. Brother, sister, when you find yourself discontent, get in the habit of counting your blessings. And don't just say, I count my blessings. Count your blessings. Go through them. Think about what you deserve And think about what God in His grace and mercy has allowed you to have. And how dare us look at someone else and become jealous. Paul is here in Rome under very different circumstances than he had hoped. Very different circumstances. He said to the Romans, I have planned to come. I have planned to come. In making all his plans, they weren't going to be like this. And now he's there. This week I had an illustration that just popped up. I heard someone speaking about a man who had been falsely accused and imprisoned for two years. That sound familiar? That's the same circumstances as Paul. Falsely accused and imprisoned under Felix and Festus for two years. They said because he was falsely accused and imprisoned for two years and then later released. But they said his life is ruined. His service to God is over. They were accurately pointing out that this man's career hopes, that this man's plans and dreams that he might have had were lost for good. His considerable plans and preparation for the future are now unattainable. 
But I've been studying for this sermon, so I was ready to point out in that moment, though the plans that they had made were ruined, the plan that God had, God's plan is still on track. This man was not useless to God, but his usefulness would look quite different from this point forward. That's the way it is with Paul. He was not going to do ministry in the way that he had planned. He was not going to do ministry in the way perhaps that he had hoped. He was not going to do ministry in the way that he had done it before. Going from place to place. Visiting in homes. Visiting in public square. Preaching in synagogues and meeting places. But was Paul's ministry over? Isn't that what we say a lot of times? Well, it's over. It's different. And Paul is still useful. <clears throat> Paul has a great attitude. I know he has a great attitude. He doesn't, he doesn't sit around and pout about it for a week or a month. In the text, we read that only three days after arriving in Rome, he has a meeting. Verse 17 says, And after three days, Paul called together those who were leading men of the Jews. He's got a meeting scheduled three days. And this meeting with all these leading men, that wasn't something that just popped up spur of the moment. That took preparation. An invitation. Who, who is it? I'm new here. Who should we invite to this meeting? Who should be here? Well, he's got to get with the Christians at the church in Rome and, and, and get with them. And they can say, well, we think this guy ought to be there and this guy. Let us help you make a list. Okay, well, I can't go and invite these guys. So you guys take these invitations and go and invite those men. This took preparation. And Paul is not pouting. He's working. Working differently than he might have thought. But he's working. He doesn't sulk or pout. He immediately goes to work. His current situation requires men to come to him. But he makes it happen. He gets, he gets going. He gets started in ministry. For someone here today... Maybe for many someone's here today. Brothers, sisters, it's, it's time to stop complaining. It's time to stop saying, well, things are not like I hoped. Things are not like I wanted. It's time to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. And it's time to get to work. Look around. God has given you a great work. Every one of you, you have a work that no one else can do. Every father, every mother, every aunt, uncle, grandparent, every child who is a child of God, you have a work that only you can do. And here we must follow Paul's example. He got to work under the circumstances that God gave him. God had placed him there. Paul was in a different kind of ministry, but though he didn't do things exactly as he had done in the past, he followed a similar agenda. An agenda similar to what we've seen throughout the book of Acts. 
first he met with the Jews. He starts with the leading men. And then he said a day when he would address a broader group of people and they came in large numbers. Look at verse 23. It says they came in large numbers. Oh, and I think this is one of the reasons why I say Paul had a very large house. That they came in large number and there was a place for them to gather so that they could hear as he addressed them. It makes sense also as we read in other places in scripture that there were some men preaching out of envy, out of jealousy. Well, look here, Paul is new in Rome. He's in a large house. People are coming to him in large numbers. Some would certainly be envious of this. Look at verse 23. And let's look as we read verse 23 and 24 at what Paul's ministry consisted of. When the day was set, uh, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. So what was his ministry? Explaining, solemnly testifying, persuading. Doesn't that sound like the same old ministry Paul has been doing? Before he was arrested, that's what he was doing. He was preaching. And now he's under arrest in Rome. And what is he doing? He's preaching. These are the elements of preaching. And when Paul is under arrest, preaching didn't go out. When the circumstance changed, preaching does not become out of style. Preaching was then and is still now until our Lord returns the primary thing for the minister of God. And preaching today should be just like Paul's preaching. Verse 23. He was explaining. Paul didn't have a new message. Well, I'm in prison now. I got a whole new thing. I got a whole new agenda. No, he's preaching the same stuff. He simply explains what the Bible says. If you want to know what was he preaching, go back and look in the previous chapters of Acts and we'll see the things that he's preaching. And it's, I think it's evident here. He's explaining I heard once about a lady who was leaving the church very disappointed in Sunday morning sermon and she walked by the preacher and she said, preacher, all you did today was explain what the Bible says. I think that preacher should have said thanks for noticing. <laughs> that's what I was going for, right? I mean, that's, that's what we should be about, explaining what the scripture says. Paul's preaching was explaining, but it says... By testifying about the kingdom of God. Testifying about the kingdom of God. This was not a kingdom of the future that he was telling them to look for one day, someday. This is the kingdom of God, which is a right now kingdom. 
And he is testifying about the then and now existing kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is a present reality. And King Jesus is our sovereign. Paul explained by testifying about the kingdom. And Paul's preaching involved trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. I often say, well, I don't want to talk you into Jesus. If I can talk you into Jesus, then someone can talk you out of it. There's truth in that. But preaching does include an element of persuasion. Now we know that no sinner will be persuaded for, the, for Christ unless the Holy Spirit is the one doing the persuading. But the preacher's job is to try to persuade concerning Jesus. Persuading sinners to follow Christ and persuading saints to obey Christ. Verse 23 says Paul was using the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. He was using the Holy Scriptures. Christians are people of the book. We don't have anything to say that's not in the book. Now we might say what's in the book using other words like in a sermon. We might write down what's in the book using other words like in creeds or confessions. But the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and our only certain infallible rule for what we believe and what we do. Paul was preaching, explaining, testifying about the kingdom, persuading and preaching the scriptures. Lastly, in verse 23, we see that Paul preached from morning till evening. So beginning next week, no, not really. <laughs> This, this is estimated that maybe with some short breaks to have been a sermon that was like six hours. Some people today who claim the name of Christ are content with 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. And if it's more than that, they're upset. 15 minutes and they think that's sufficient to feed them for a whole week. Now we don't go six hours. But we must recognize that the preaching of the word of God is the food for our soul. And when we are underfed, we become malnourished and weak. How many times, how many times do we hear as pastors, people come to us and say, I'm defeated, I'm downtrodden, and or I'm in this sin. Do you think those people are the ones who are here for our Sunday morning Bible study? 
and stay for our worship time and fellowship with us over lunch and come back on Wednesday evening? Does anybody think that? We begin to withdraw. We begin to neglect the preaching of the word. Neglect our worship together. And we become malnourished and weak. We won't be preaching six hour sermons. But we want to spend the time necessary that our souls may be filled from the word of God. So Paul's new ministry, it's, it's different. He's under arrest. It's a different thing. But it was still centered around the preaching of God's word, the preaching of Christ. And all ministry that is God's ministry will be centered around his word and the preaching of it until the end of the age. Now, as we come to the end of Acts, you got questions? What happens to Paul? What 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 happened? We get a few clues in his epistles, but wow, if they made this into a movie, we would walk out of the theater going, that was anticlimactic. That was, dare we say, disappointing. Some have said that very thing about the end of Acts. So many extraordinary things happen from chapter 1 all the way up to now. Remember, remember Pentecost? Where the Holy Spirit for the first time indwelled believers and they received the sign of tongues? Remember those first days in Jerusalem where Peter preached and thousands came to Christ in faith? Remember the miracles, the miraculous prison breaks by angels, by earthquakes? So many wonders and signs performed and they're recorded on these pages written by Dr. Luke. But now we get to the end and Paul's just preaching. <laughs> I titled the sermon Extraordinary Ordinary. If you needed a longer title, the extraordinary nature of the ordinary means of grace. What, what more could there be? There's, there's no fireworks. There's nothing that we would call exciting. He just stays there for two years in his rented quarters, verse 30, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all openness unhindered. Wow. Some of you have asked, what can we pray for our church? Or what can we pray for our pastors? Pray that we could preach the kingdom of God and teach concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. I don't think this is anticlimactic. I think it is instructive. We're left, yes, not knowing what happens to Paul at the end of this letter. But Paul is not the star of the show. Paul's name is not on the marquee. This is not about Paul. He's not the main character of the book of Acts. 
This is, if you'll remember, Luke wrote to Theophilus. He wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And then he said the former in Acts, he says, the former I wrote to you that about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication here is the book of Acts is the continuation of all that Jesus the resurrected Jesus through the Holy Spirit in filled church continued to do and teach. Paul preached the kingdom and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the extraordinary things that happened in Acts were centered around this same preaching. The ordinary thing. Preaching the scripture, preaching Christ and him crucified. And when the preaching of Christ is blessed by God, it brings about the most extraordinary events. Great revivals come when the word of God is preached. Sin and evil are called out and put down by the preaching of the word. God is exalted and righteousness is proclaimed when the word of Christ is preached. Some people reject Christ and the preaching of the word becomes a fragrance of death to the dead. And that too is the word of God. But for those who are being saved, the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. The ordinary brings the extraordinary. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his ministry that he had among the Gentiles and we recognize that our existence as Christians today is because largely of what you have done in Paul's ministry what you have, have allowed to come to pass. So God, we thank you for Paul's ministry, but we thank you that ministry didn't stop with Paul. God, we pray that as your people, we would have an ongoing and growing love for your word that testifies of you and that in our churches, we would demand a faithful exegesis, a faithful and right dividing of the word of God. Help us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name.